Think with me for a moment about communication, about how pervasive communication is in our everyday lives, the back and forth of conversation. A couple centuries ago, communication was largely face-to-face conversation. You had a conversation with someone, or you wrote them a letter, or you read a letter, and that was pretty much the extent of it. At the end of the day, you put your head down, and when the conversations were over, it was quiet, and there was no other input. There was no little phone next to you that could constantly be feeding you more communication. Um, But we live at a time now when communication is seemingly constant. It is instantaneous. It continues to come at us, and it It makes the challenge to communicate well even greater. I can be sitting in the living room, having a conversation with my wife, while texting back and forth with one of my kids, while in a group chat with guys from church, while looking up some information on the internet, while answering an email, while blocking or sending to voicemail at least CVS when they've called for the third time to say about a prescription refill, and the TV can be on in the background. All of that can be happening all at the same time. That's not an exaggeration. A lot of you have had that very same experience where there's just multiple things all happening at once. And the thought of withdrawing from communication seems almost impossible. The the idea that we could just get back to sort of face-to-face conversations and essential phone calls, it just seems impossible. I worked a couple of political campaigns years ago, and that was my indoctrination into the expectation on the job that that phone better be with you at all times, and you better be ready to answer at all times and respond to text. Some of you have that at your jobs, where there is that expectation that you are on call all the time for some form of communication. Proverbs 10.19 gives God's wise warning on this. ESV says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I don't often quote New Living Translation, but I think they sort of hit the mark here. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and shut your mouth. There's one way to say what the writer in Proverbs is saying. When there's just this abundance of communication we inevitably are going to get ourselves into trouble. We're inevitably going to regret things that we've said, using the wrong words, not saying something that we should, using a tone or a volume that was unnecessary or unhelpful, speaking too quickly, not listening long enough, hitting send when we probably should have prayed a moment before we sent that fiery email off. And then for passively receiving communication, internet, TV, the stuff that just comes at us and sometimes leads our hearts far from the glory of God. There is a lot of communication. And and I want us to think about it this morning. This started as, in my mind anyway, one particular sermon on Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. The more I studied the verses leading up to this that sort of set the, the, the case for this kind of communication, the more it just challenged me and made me think, and I, I, I'm going to make this a two-part sermon. Um, a little bit of a problem in that next week, about 50 of our guys are going to be away on a retreat up in Maryland next Sunday, so I'm going to hope that today you guys see the, the foundation here in part one and are urged to go ahead and pick up off the internet the following week, part two. I'm also going to hope that those of you who are married That your wife will lovingly remind you, lovingly remind you, that since communication is a two-way discipline, that you'll want to go ahead and listen to the second part as well, because it'll it'll help. So turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read a long section that starts in verse 17 and actually go right into just the first couple verses of chapter 5. This is one of those 
places where the chapter break is not particularly helpful. Chapter numbers, verse numbers, all of that is sort of an added sort of mechanic to help us in our reading, but Paul just wrote this straight through as a letter, and so this is one of those chapter breaks that's not necessarily helpful, but let me start in Ephesians 4.17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil." Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me start just by giving you the big picture where I hope these, these two weeks take us on this topic and then we'll talk more specifically about part one, what we're going to look at today. The big picture is this. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if he is your Savior, then the new life you have in Christ should be transforming and shaping your heart so that it influences what you speak and write so that it is increasingly filling you with truth and love and edification and purpose and tenderness and grace as you speak to others, as you communicate with others. Uh, to put it more simply, how we communicate with others should give evidence of how we imitate Christ. How we communicate with others should give evidence of how we imitate Christ. So to that end, I want to focus this week on seven resources God has given us, this passage that we've gone through, seven things that God has given us for gracious communication next week down to the more nitty-gritty of what that communication looks like. So this is the, the why next week is more of the how, if you will. But, but here's what I hope you take away from just this morning in particular, and that's this. God has given us everything we need to communicate with one another with grace and love and purpose. God has given us all of the resources that we need to communicate with one another with grace and love and purpose. When it comes to our failures in communication, not listening to people, showing disinterest by our body language, unkind speech, dishonesty, yelling, cursing, you name it. The, the, the temptation 
is to respond with, well, that's just me. You know, that's just old habits. It's just kind of the way I am. That's sort of my personality. I can't really change or some, some variation on that. The truth is that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then the things that we see this morning in Scripture, these truths are meant to destroy the I can't argument. They, they are to disarm that argument that says, well, I, it's just the way I am, it's just the way I talk, I just can't really change. God has provided abundantly to ensure that you and I, trusting in Jesus Christ, would talk differently and listen differently than the world. So let's start with these seven things that that God has equipped us to do probably the thing we do most in life with other people, and that is communication. Um, Chapter 3 of Ephesians, uh, Jeremy read a little bit of that to you in the opening. It is this um, ending of thanksgiving with God. He ends with prayer at the end of chapter 3. He's just spent the first three chapters laying out wonderful gospel truths about what Jesus has done, how he has saved us. And so he ends with this wonderful prayer of thanksgiving. And then in chapter 4 says, therefore, in light of these things, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of how he has rescued you, how he has saved you by his grace, therefore, walk worthy of that calling. Therefore, because this has happened, because of what God has done, it should change how you live. It is no coincidence and it is not random that then the the matter of behavior that Paul seems to deal the most with in chapter 4 is interpersonal communication. When he makes the shift to say, now therefore, walk differently, he almost immediately begins dealing with issues of the tongue, how we speak to one another, how we interact with one another. That's because that is, that is the point at which most of us face struggle. That is the place at which most of us are tempted to, to respond quickly, to, to, to win the argument at all costs, to say whatever we want to say, whether that's in face-to-face or email or text. And so we are going to undertake this topic. Let's pick up again, and let me just read again, just a few verses starting in 17 as we lay out sort of the first resource. 417 says, This I say, testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Stop there. First resource God has given to believers in Jesus Christ to enable us toward gracious communication is a mandate. And the mandate is, you know Christ. Stop speaking as if you are still part of the world. You know Christ. You have come to learn Christ. You should look different. You should sound different. You should Listen different. Verse 20 says we are different because, he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. What sets us apart is this learning. We sometimes in evangelical 
sort of lingo, we, we talk of people making a decision for Christ or accepting Jesus Christ, and we sort, sort of shortchange what, what is really at the heart of what he's describing here when he speaks of following Christ as discipleship, as learning who Jesus is. It's not just that at a moment in time you said yes to the gospel and began trusting in Christ. By God's grace that God has saved you and you are trusting in Christ, then you look back and you can see that. But it is an ongoing entrance into a school of discipleship so that we are learning Christ, so that we are continuing to understand this is what we were This is who we are now in Christ because we are learning what is different. We don't stop with Christ at the gospel. Salvation is just the beginning of meditating on the life of Christ because we we follow him. We learn Christ so that we see that the way we were thinking before Christ was wrong. It was different. It was not what we are now. It's not reflective of who we should be. It's it's all summed up in that description in verses 17 through 19. It's a way of, apart from Christ, it's a way of life that, that is futile, that is foolish, that is darkened in understanding, that is ignorant and hard-hearted and calloused and self-serving and driven by selfish lust. He says that's It's not where you are now. That's why he's able to make this mandate in verse 17 and say, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. He's able to command us about that because we are not there any longer. We don't respond the same because of who we are now by his saving grace. We know this. Our speech can so easily fall back into those old ways if we are not growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We can easily fall back into the quick response, the win the argument at any cost. We have to be learning Christ. Reality is you and I never had to learn to speak dishonestly. We never had to take a class to be taught how to complain. We never had to be taught by someone, this is how you raise your voice and complain when things don't go your way. We know this. Those of you who are parents know this because you've seen that in your, your children. It, it didn't seem like anyone had to teach them to scream because they weren't getting their way at the moment and complain and let you know verbally that they were not happy. But we do learn Christ. That's, that's what comes natural, but the mandate here is to stop those ways. No longer walk or talk like unbelievers because now you have learned Christ. You know him. You are following him. You are a disciple of his. So stop talking and communicating in ways with other people that are completely indistinguishable from the way unbelievers do. God has given us that mandate. Secondly, he has given us hope. He gives us glorious, much-needed hope that gracious communication is possible. And he does that if you look at verse 20. says, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and, here's the key, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Ephesians chapter 4 puts a lot of emphasis on putting off and putting on. Put off the old self, put on the new. We've already talked about the old self. We are to be putting that off and its deceitful desires. That is what we were. We'll talk about the putting on of the new in just a moment. But in verse 23, here's the hope. 
We are being renewed in the spirit of our minds. That phrase that he uses here, that the spirit of your minds, probably is not a reference particularly to the Holy Spirit. When he uses that word spirit, we tend to gravitate toward Holy Spirit. He's probably talking about spirit as in the the inner component of human beings. He's talking about something the Holy Spirit does. We'll see that in a moment. But when he says the spirit of your minds, he's sort of building up synonyms to talk about your inner man. Our, our, our heart, where our will is, where we, where we have motives, where we make decisions. In chapter 3, as Jeremy read at the beginning of the service, he read from that, that prayer of Paul's where it says, may you be strengthened in your inner being. It's just synonymous with this. Paul is using terms to try to get to the heart. It is the, the inner being, the spirit, the mind in which... The Holy Spirit is doing a work, he describes here. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. It is a present tense, so you are being ongoing renewed. You are being made new on a constant basis. You don't just get made new once, or you don't finally get made new, finished, done, but it is a process of the Holy Spirit continuing to renew us and it is, interestingly, that, that word renewed, you are being renewed, it's a passive verb. Remember when your English teacher would ding you for using passive verbs? Use active verbs. I drove the car, not the car was driven by me, right? The point of the passive in verse 23 is to say something is renewing our minds. Something is acting on us. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have hope to be gracious in our communication because God's Spirit is at work in our inner being, making us new, changing our thinking, our intents, our desires. Titus 3.5 speaks of this sort of two-part work of the Holy Spirit when it speaks of regeneration, the, the moment of new birth. He is, it says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, there is the, the work of saving but then there is this ongoing renewing, which is happening within us to change our affections, to change the things that, that we long for, so that our hearts, now made new, start to act like that, start to look like that in, in their outworking. This struggle that we have with sinful communication, maybe it's lies, bitter accusations, over-the-top anger, self-centered, self-righteous words, we are not left to struggle alone. God is graciously giving us encouragement here that he is working in us by his grace in order to enable us to do this, in order to enable us to communicate graciously and to speak and act like the new creatures that we are in Christ. For example, what we're doing here this morning on the surface, is reading a piece of literature and thinking about it, right? That's, that's just the purely external act of reading and talking about what we read here in a passage of Scripture. The, the spiritual reality is we know that for believers in Jesus Christ, the Word of God is living and active. And so as we are reading this and thinking about it, God's Spirit is working within us to transform our hearts, to renew us, so that we begin to think and act more like what we see. God's Spirit is taking His truth and renewing our thinking so that 
when I read Ephesians 4 and I see these old, ugly, ungodly ways of communication and I see these new grace-filled, loving means of communication, what the Holy Spirit is doing is, is working within me to detest those old ways more, to not want to go back to them and to long for these that's why he's changing our hearts because the word of God has that, that power to renew our thinking so that it's not merely reading a piece of literature and talking about it. It is the living and active word of God going to our hearts and changing our desires. And that should give us hope. So he says in verse 23 that you've been taught to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and then verse 24 and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. It's given us a mandate to stop communicating as we did as unbelievers. Hope in the sweet work he's doing within us to make us new. And then third, God has given us a whole new reality, a reality that enables gracious communication to be the way of life, not the exception. Because of what he has done in salvation, we actually have the capacity to do what we could not do apart from Christ. Throughout the balance of the book of Ephesians, as it deals largely with sort of practical walking out the Christian life, there's a lot of this imagery that follows the put-off, put-on pattern that he's already given. He sort of set that as kind of the reality and said, now your Christian life should be characterized by that. Taking, as you recognize, old sinful patterns, removing them like an old worn-out garment and putting on new ones that look like Christ. Well, all of that rests on what he says in verse 24. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Christ... We are new creatures. We're not just remade. We are new creatures made in true righteousness and holiness. Two things that we completely lacked apart from Christ. We had no righteousness and holiness. We had no right standing before God. We had no ability prior to Christ to, to go to God and say, hey, look at me. I deserve to be here. I've done all kinds of charitable deeds and good things, and, and I'm a pretty good person. We lacked righteousness. Scripture's clear. Isaiah's clear. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. If, if what we're doing is, is trying to bring scorekeeping stuff to God and impress him with it, he says, doesn't do it. We needed righteousness. We needed a right standing, and that comes from Christ. And holiness means to be set apart. We are completely unholy when we are not trusting in Jesus Christ, when we are apart from Christ. The only thing that we are separated from as unbelievers is God himself. That's the point in verse 18 when it says they are alienated from the life of God. They are completely set apart. The unbeliever is in hard-hearted rebellion and lacking in the very things that we need in order to stand before God. Righteousness and holiness. And what Scripture says here in verse 24 is when he saves us, he now imparts those things to us, making us new creatures. So now we can live differently because we're not who we were before. This phrase that he uses after the likeness of God should 
remind you of Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, God speaking, that man is made in the image of God, indeed he is, but the reality is sin mars that likeness. When man fell into sin, suddenly the glorious likeness of God is now marred by sinful arrogance and selfishness and all of the things that we do. All human beings are made by the hand of God. We bear the image of his handiwork. But sinful rebellion makes us look and act and speak like anything but those who belong to the Creator. We need new birth. We need to be new creatures. And he says that's what it is. That's what he does. The the miracle of the new creation is the reality that changes everything. And that now enables us to be gracious in our communication with each other. Verse 25. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Here's the the fifth thing. Mandate, hope, reality, incentive now. Fourth one, Um, incentive. We have this wonderful incentive that God has given us for gracious communication in our union with one another. Our being members of one another is an incentive for us to communicate graciously with one another. The kind of gracious communication that displays itself in me listening and wanting to hear you speak into my life and me speaking truth and love to you arises from the fact that we are members, he says, of one another. We are joined together. I can't do this alone. I not only need Christ, but apparently as it's clear here, I also need you. I need you to speak into my life and to counsel and to exhort and to confront, to love enough to speak truth to. We're in this together, exhorting each other, praying for each other, caring for one another, speaking truth and love to one another. He didn't simply write as he could have, you are members of a body. He specifically said, you are members of one another. Such a unique description. He uses the same kind of language in Romans 12. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. If you're thinking, what does that mean? Look back up at verse 15 for a moment. I think he's described it for us already and assumes it when he comes down here to verse 25. Verse 15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God has designed the body, in particular the the local church, as sort of a, a greenhouse of where he grows people, and he does that not only through his word, and through his spirit ministering that word to us, but through each other, through speaking into each other's lives. As we speak, this is all part of the same thought here in 15 and 16, speaking the truth in love. As we speak truth to each other, particularly as we speak gospel truths to each other, we are helping to grow the whole body because we are joined together. And so we We care for one another and love one another. We have this tremendous incentive to speak truth to each other. The magnetic pull of sin will draw me toward isolation, 
right? Isn't that where if, 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 if sin steps in, sin wants to pull me back from you. Sin doesn't want me to speak lovingly to you, to speak truth to you. And sin also wants me to shut you out when you're speaking to me and you're trying to speak correction to me. Sin will move me toward isolation and toward my own comfort and ease. That's why it's easier for me then to look at somebody who is struggling and think, well, I hope somebody talks to that person. <laughs> hope somebody ministers grace to that person. Because, you know, I'm not so sure I want to do it. That's what sin does. It isolates us in that way. The description that he gives here is we, we are incentivized toward gracious communication by being bound to each other. So we, we, we can't, can't pass this off and say, well, this is not my responsibility because we are not only neighbors. He uses that term in verse 25. Speak the truth with his neighbor, Jesus already set the parameters of, of neighbor back in, the, in Luke and in the, the story of the Good Samaritan and made it clear that it's not just the person you want to have next to you, but it is all of these people who are around you, the ones who are different from you. God has made them your neighbors. But then he, he takes it to that next step and says, we are members of one another. We are joined together in complete interdependence like a body where if one part doesn't function, then the body is affected by that. And so we are called not only to grow as individuals, but to grow together. We, we need to believe this, friends, right? It, it's easy in the moments when we are singing together and we are enjoying the wonderful sound of worship to appreciate the body and to appreciate just the corporate coming together. It's not always quite that same sense of welcome when it's somebody speaking truth into our lives that maybe makes us uncomfortable at that moment. But that's what we're called to. It's to be interdependent with one another, to be joined together to speak the truth in love. So verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The fifth resource is a warning. If the incentive of being joined together as a body and the reality of new life in Christ and the renewing work of the Spirit of God in our minds is not enough, then God also gives us a very serious warning that there are spiritual consequences for when we treat communication carelessly. When we are reckless with our words, we are belligerent in our listening, whatever it might be, he says there are consequences for that. The first one he describes is giving Satan a foothold. The other is creating situations that bring grief to the Spirit of God. Venting angry words, lacking grace in what we say saying things that make reconciliation harder. That description that he gives of, of calling it a day when you're angry and not working toward reconciliation, that you've, you've vented your words and you've, you've said your piece and you've, you, you've, you're convinced you've won the argument. Enough, right? And he says what you've done at that point is you have given your adversary an opportunity. You are giving him a foothold into that relationship. You are giving Satan the chance to continue to scheme and work. F.F. Bruce, great commentary on the book of Ephesians, says the prime promoter and exploiter of discord among brothers or sisters is the devil. 
we know this because Paul will go on in Ephesians chapter 6 and go on at length about spiritual warfare. He will go on about this very fact that you and I are engaged in a pitched battle against an enemy who would long to destroy us, but short of being able to do that because we are redeemed and saved, wants to destroy our unity, wants to destroy our fellowship, wants to destroy our love for one another, wants to destroy our desire to speak truth to one another, wants to do whatever he can to sow discord in our homes, in our churches, in our relationships. He is constantly scheming toward that end. And this is a warning to us to not cooperate with that, to understand that this is not just a case of seeing who can win the argument or get the last word, and this is actually cooperating with Satan in his schemes, and he is warning us against that. Likewise, verse 30 is a direct connection back to verse 29, so that statement, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, is not just a random out there in a list of instructions, don't do this, don't do this. It goes right back to, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, and he gives the alternative to that, and then says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. It is a warning that when we speak destructive words, when we speak corrupting talk, we are bringing grief to the Spirit of God. Corruptive, uh, corrupting talk covers the whole gamut of destructive speech, vulgarity, deceit, slander, filthy speech. Such words not only defy our newness in Christ, but the description here is they actually bring grief to the Spirit of God. That's not as difficult to understand when you think of what we've already seen in this passage. The Holy Spirit uses words to build the body together in unity, to grow the body in Christ-likeness. He uses the word of God, and he uses you and I speaking truth to one another in love. And he takes those words and he uses them for the glory of God and the building up of the body, the edification of the body. So when you and I take words and use them as weapons to try to destroy the other person for the sake of winning that conversation, then we bring grief to the Holy Spirit. We do exactly the opposite in taking what he has given us and the treasure he has given us for a purpose, and we use it against one another and build and tear one another up. That's the warning. Go back to verse 29, number six. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Sixth resource God has given us is the opportunity to serve our brothers and sisters with gracious communication by building them up and giving them grace. I want you to think about this for a moment. We often speak of God pouring out his grace on us. We could go on and on if I said, tell me the ways that God has shown grace to you. We could, we could do testimonies for hours here of how God has lavished us with his grace, how he has shown us immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, certainly far more than we ever deserve. The opening chapters of Ephesians are a monument to God's grace. It talks about we are, we are redeemed according to the riches of his grace, he says in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we are saved by grace through faith. And so it has been this tribute to God's grace. And now here is Paul, here is God's word saying, and you and I, not only as recipients of God's grace, we also, we also have the opportunity to give grace to others to use our words in such a way 
that that experience we've had repeatedly from God of his grace is now the experience we can minister to someone else by bringing grace into their lives, by caring for them enough to speak truth to them in a charitable, loving way. We are enabled by God to actually say things that God uses to grow us in the likeness of Christ. What a wonderful opportunity that is for us to build one another up and to minister grace with our words. So here's the question. For, for me as much for you, are we looking for those opportunities? Especially in those trying moments when, when the conversation is starting to go awry and our minds are gravitating toward, okay, I have to win this argument, so what do I need to say? How do I need to say this so that I win? Those are the moments when we are being urged here to strive to, how do I, how do I show grace? How do I minister God's grace to this person in this moment? How can I use the words that God has, has lavished on me now to help this person? It may not always be just sweet and, and, and sort of innocent. It may be speaking truth and love, but even in that, it can be done in a tone in such a way that it is showing grace because it is, it is striving for giving them the best in Christ, what Christ would desire for them in that moment. Do we, do we think about those things? Because God has given us that opportunity, he says plainly here, that we can do that which is helpful for building others up and give grace to those who hear. Last one, at the end of the chapter, he's warned against bitterness and slander and anger and said to put that away. And then verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Mandate, hope, new reality, wonderful incentive, opportunity for service. And finally, the seventh one is God has given us a perfect model to follow and learn from in Jesus Christ. God has not simply said, do this. This is what you need to do, but he has shown it to us. There's no coincidence here that the New Testament has four books that are the life of Jesus Christ, four books that show us Christ because we need to learn Christ because he is the model. Words of kindness and tenderness and forgiveness are not natural to us inherently. They don't just ordinarily flow unless... We have learned them from Jesus, unless we have seen them from Christ, unless we are being renewed by him and now able to speak those things after him. We learn what those things, we learn what forgiveness looks like. We learn what tenderness looks like as we look at Jesus Christ. John says it in 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John is saying that apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we could talk about love and have songs about love, but we wouldn't really know what sacrificial giving of oneself is on an ongoing basis. That's what we see in Christ. That is the love that we see from Christ. And so he says, by this, we learn that. Our understanding of how to use words that express genuine and sacrificial love comes from 
looking at Christ, following his pattern. As the Savior suffered on the cross, mocked by the people who stood around, as he is giving his life as a ransom, put there in, in the most shameful of ways, in that moment as he is being mocked, what, what is his desire for the people around him? Father, forgive them. His desire, even in that moment, is that the Father would graciously open their eyes to see the foolishness of what they have done and that they would turn from that and that he could lavish forgiveness on them. Even in that moment, his desire is to not revile back. In fact, Peter, when he says Jesus was an example for us to follow in his steps, the next line is Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He is an example for us to follow. And where does he take us first? To his actions and his words. It w- there was nothing that came out of his mouth that was deceitful. There was nothing that was sinful about what Jesus Christ said. And in fact, he goes on, Peter, and says he didn't return evil for evil. He didn't revile those who re- reviled him. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He rested in, in his father's goodness and his father's justice. Jesus shows us what it means to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Over and over, he models speech for us. And that's why Paul then says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Look different. Love like Christ. Use words that speak his truth into the lives of others. You and I have a mandate to no longer communicate as we did before to not sound like unbelievers with our words. We have hope that we can do this because his spirit is in us renewing our thinking even in this moment. We have a whole new reality. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are a new creature in Christ in the likeness of your Savior. We have the incentive of being joined together as a body of believers of of actually doing this side by side with each other to help each other grow in Christ. We have the warnings of spiritual consequences when we treat our speech carelessly. We have the opportunity to actually give grace to people with our words. We have the pattern in Jesus Christ. With all of that, can you honestly now say, ah, I can't. (laughs) Ah, you know, I'm just... I just lose it. That's just the way I am. That's my personality. You know, that's that's just, I I just can't help it. I know I say things that are crude or impure, but that's what I've been around my whole life. Listen, friend, God knows that communication is a massive battleground in our lives. That's why Ephesians 4, therefore walk this way, now begins to immediately address us right where we are. And God has not left us to do this alone. And so where you struggle with communication, where I struggle with communication, God is there saying, I am working in you. I am renewing you. You are a new creature. You have these people who love you. Give grace to them. Serve them. Use words for reasons that the Holy Spirit celebrates, not ones that grieve. Don't participate with Satan and his schemes. Our response as disciples of Christ should be to look to Christ all the more and say, I want, to, I want to see what it should look like and what I should sound like. I want to see what Jesus does, and I want to be able to emulate that. I would encourage you this week, just 
meditate on Ephesians 4 on this passage. I, I, I hope that for me and I hope for you, there are times it brings us up short when we are tempted in that moment to want to blast right back and say what the first thing is that comes to mind. hope it's in those moments that we're able to come back to these truths and go, wait a minute, God's equipped me to do differently in this case. How do I show grace? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking to the, the areas of our life that are so very challenging. We thank you that salvation in Christ is transforming, that it is new life, that it is hope, that it is forgiveness and eternal life. But we thank you that it's not just that forward looking, as glorious as that is, but that you are equipping us in the moment to respond differently to when we feel like we are at the wit's end and out of patience and we've been down this path before, in those moments, your word continues to speak to us that you have a Savior who did not become impatient, who did not revile back, who did not throw his hands up and finally just lash out. You have a Savior who loves, who is patient, who is kind, who is tender, who is forgiving. Lord, may we as recipients of your grace through Christ, be servants who minister your grace to the people around us, knowing that we did not deserve that grace, and whether the people around us do or not by their actions. Help us to be ministers who seek to desire Christ's best for them in whatever that moment brings. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for being with us. Thank you, Spirit, for working in us to renew us. Help us to apply these things, we pray in Jesus' name.